I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It was Wednesday, January 22, 1997, and Ken Arthurson arrived at Phillips Street for an ARL board meeting. Still reeling from Channel 9's recent announcement that it has secured the free-to-air rights to Super League, the board would soon have another shock to absorb. Arthurson announced that he would be stepping down from the ARL chairmanship, ending his active role in the administration of the establishment competition only months after John Quayle's resignation. As the war dragged on into a third year, the push for peace in rugby league would go on without them. This is Clearing the Decks, the 32nd chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin for Season 3 of the Super League War. How's it going, Andy? Mate, I'm over the moon to be back. It's been a long time coming. It has been a long time coming. We're into our third season. Uh, We've been working very hard on getting it to you. So I thought as we are starting a new season, we should set up what this season will entail. Well, you've been, I don't want to quote, Dr. Dre and Eminem, but you've been in the lab. (laughs) You've been absolutely working your tail off, and I've seen the material, and it's going to be a killer, killer season. The funny thing is about this season, where we're we're covering the 1997 season, so the actual split of the competition, you would think that this would be the most, like, toxic of all, but in some way, it's the complete opposite of that. All the air has kind of gone out of the fight. And I think both camps and the media are just making the peace with the fact that, well, we're stuck with two competitions now, so we've just got to get through it. This is life now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this season is predominantly about what happened on the field, which for me has been quite refreshing in doing all the research that we're, you know, going to be spending a lot of time talking about Mark Geyer eye gouging incidents and, (laughs) you know, the never ending Julian O'Neill saga and, and all these other kind of on-field scandals that took place throughout the year. So we are going to be looking mainly at how the two seasons unfolded, but this will be bookended by a couple of chapters that are devoted to what can be considered the driving theme for this season, which is the fragile but inevitable march to reunification. Very fragile. Well, this is the interesting thing to me when discussing that it's kind of a duality, the fragility and the inevitability. Like We say it's inevitable just because by weeks into the season, you could argue that even before a ball had been kicked, it was obvious that rugby league may not survive a second year of split competitions. Well, that's the thing. Like I remember being excited about it. This is new. This is something different. Let's see how it goes. You know, like, you know, I was pro Super League at that point, and I was like, you know, this is exciting. New teams, new, new areas how these squads going to mesh, you know, I was excited by it. I think that's a bit of hyperbole, the the game's not going to survive. I think it would survive a nuclear holocaust and they'd still be playing yeah, yeah, yeah. Group 9, you know. Like. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it would have survived in some form, but with all the internal drama on top of the other sporting codes kind of taking some of rugby league's influence and the gigantic money pit that was deepening <laughs> by the day. <laughs> like, I, I think, I do think if we had a second split competition in 1998, rugby league today would have been very different. I, I don't know how much of it would have remained. It's the sporting competition equivalent of buying a boat and then trying to like refurb it. (laughs) (laughs) More money, more money. So we talk about the inevitability of compromise, but it could have all fallen apart at so many points throughout the year. So it was a very tenuous compromise. And so this is kind of the underlying theme of the season is the road to reunification. So The middle part of our season is all about the on-field, but we're going to be talking about the changes that needed to happen to make compromise come together, some of the machinations behind the scene, and one of those is the people who made it happen, which in almost all cases is not the people who were there when the war started. Yeah, it's crazy. So this chapter, our first episode of the season, basically picks up the story from where we left it in chapter 31. So in the last 10 to 15 minutes of our last episode of season two, we talked about this clearing of the decks with some of the key players on both sides uh, taking new roles, retiring, and just basically moving on, allowing a fresh batch of names and faces to come in and get the game together again. How perfect is the rugby league analogy of dead wood? Uh, Yeah. So as always with rugby league, a lot of dead wood in the playing ranks and even more dead wood among the empty suits of administration. So I think to set it all up, basically with all of the key players involved, there was just too much water under the bridge, too many mental scars, and probably most important of all, too many abrasive personalities for for these people to to be the ones to get us back to peace. Even as a teenager, I, I knew that innately. It's like, well, Quail's got to go. Yeah. Um, Rebo's got to go. Yeah. They can't work together. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if, if kids know about it, I mean, how deep is the scarring? Yeah. So this did happen on both sides. We're going to talk about the Super League side of things more because I think outside of Rebo, some of the key names involved in the Super League war from the News Limited side, their rugby league story begins and ends with Super League. You know, they came in for a couple of years ruined everything, and then <laughs> went back to the Raras or otherwise never heard of again. R.M. Williams. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's start there. R.M. Williams, <laughs> Ken Cowley. So he announced that he was stepping down after 30-odd years as an executive for News Limited to be replaced by Lachlan Murdoch. Uh, and so that was basically Ken Cowley gone from the story at this point. I was just been thinking over the off-season about the businessmen involved and how much I hate their like grandstanding and with Ken Kelly, I think it was other people saying it about him. What a great bloke, you know. Yeah. What a legendary businessman. It's like the fans don't give a shit about businessmen. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when they used to say like, um, a Michael Koppel is the best promoter. Mm. I don't give a fuck about yeah, Michael yeah, Koppel. Yeah. 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 Care yeah. About in excess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And a name we will hear sprinkled in throughout this season, and we've said it before, but. From Channel 9, David Leckie. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I've got so much David Leckie content (laughs) in my notes that most of it you will not hear from because, like, it even bores me (laughs) to hear this name. Like, 
I remember, I can't believe we're on a 90s TV tangent this early in the <laughs> season, but I remember Wendy Harmer hosted the Logies yeah. uh, at some point in the late 90s. I love Wendy. And in the review afterwards, it was like, there were too many David Leckie jokes. The public doesn't give a fuck about David <laughs> Leckie. <laughs> but even funnier, the ex-wife, Sky Leckie, she was like in the papers every day at that yeah. point. <laughs> Sky Leckie was spotted at this restaurant. No one cares. <laughs> So I think that's very true of all the administration kind of people in this story. So this quote from Kerry Packer uh, on the, the announcement that Ken Kelly would be stepping down. I think very highly of Ken on both a personal and business level. What is unique about him is that Rupert has absolute trust in him. His departure signals the birth of the new millennium. Like, is it all a game to these guys? That's what it is, yeah. Yeah. And that little dig at Rupert, he only has trust in certain people. So, yeah, it is a game, and it's a sick game, and the public, the real mm. people, yeah. we care about, um, is Mal Cochran going to play first grade this week? Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Ken Cowley leaves and takes on a job at RM Williams as a retirement gig, leading to 30 more years of articles about him growing up in a tent in Bankstown, <laughs> to which, again, like... Who cares? You're a multimillionaire living in Mossman. Yeah. And, you know, we have to hear about this origin story to give you some legitimacy to a public that doesn't care the first thing about you anyway. It's funny. It's across a lot of different genres, sport, entertainment. The businessmen want to get involved. Mm. They want to be the stars. It's like you can't play footy. So just be an administrator, keep your head down, do a good job, and then that's it. You don't get to be the star. No. Mal Meninga gets to be the star. Yeah. <laughs> and conversely, Mal Meninga uh, should have stayed in his lane <laughs> at, at a few more points in the story. <laughs> Mal Meninga, you don't get to be the politician. <laughs> well, he taught himself that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, enough with Ken Cowley, who departs our story, and hopefully we don't hear his name again. I think that would be a good outcome for everyone. Legendary businessman. <laughs> Grew up in a tent in Bankstown, you know. Great he started boy. from nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, he probably was a good bloke. but Yeah, yeah, yeah. He still had, played a significant role in destroying the game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is, as you remember from an earlier quote, the last thing he wanted to do <laughs> was destroy rugby league. Uh, but someone who definitely has a lot more of a rugby league story is John Rebo, who... Uh, he announced mid-1997 that he was stepping down from the Super League CEO position and would be heading up the new Melbourne franchise. I thought that was a good move. He obviously has some nous in that area, and at the time it's like, well, they need someone down there with nous. He's far enough away. There still would be venom travelling that way, but yeah, it'd yeah. take a while to get there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think by the time of an, the announcement, so Ian Frickberg, who we're going to introduce shortly, He'd been brought in early in 1997 to basically oversee the whole thing. So John Rebo's role wouldn't have anything to do with the peace negotiations. That would be all Frickberg. And so Rebo, like by the time he announced that he was stepping down, he'd already been sidelined to some extent, and, and I think quite happily so. Uh, he should have done like a Barbara Walters-style interview after this because we've covered this at length, but... He wasn't expecting the hatred. No. He wasn't expected to be public enemy number one, yeah. two, and three, Yeah, which he was. And then it must have crushed his soul. Oh, like he seems remarkably resilient when you hear him in interviews to this day. Like he's still very clear in the goals of Super League. I think he really he meant it, right? 
you said it there in your first line. He didn't expect the vitriol. I don't think News Limited were expecting the level of vitriol that they got, which was a key mistake. Very surprising, yeah. <laughs> yeah like that, that was a key mistake. <laughs> Particularly but, considering he's a rugby league player at Manly. Yeah. <laughs> he must not be yeah. vitriol. <laughs> so I think this is one of the key mistakes. And Rebo, in some sense, is an unwitting victim of this. They weren't prepared for the level of public distaste that was going to be focused very specifically on John Rebo. It's a dim-witted victim, then. Yeah. <laughs> that was coming down Main Street. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think where it went wrong is that once April 1 happened and suddenly you've got Murdoch money, you've got Kerry Packer and Optus coming in, that was way above Rebo's pay grade yeah. to be able to get this all together. Once there was any resistance from the ARL... Rebo wasn't going to have the ability to do what needed to be done. For a guy interested in finance, that must have been like Bonanza. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing about that vitriol is that once that took place, once Rebo became public enemy number one, it was clear in 1995 that Rebo could have no place in a United competition. If Super League came in and you know decimated the ARL in 90, 1995, maybe, but once the war dug in, Rebo couldn't survive it. There seemed to be a 100% agreement rate on Rebo and Quayle and maybe a 90% on Arco. Yeah. Do you reckon Arco could have survived it the, if he was in health? Well, the very interesting thing is the offer that Super League made to Arco in 1995 to come over and run Super League. And Arco would never have accepted it, so I don't think it got very far. But I think there is a chance that Arco could have survived it. He has the, uh, the Fred Astaire nature to do that. Yeah, yeah. But I think Rebo and Quayle were both like very self-aware about that fact that they had to be got rid of to bring about peace. Like Rebo's quote on the subject was, I recognise that I'm perhaps still viewed as an impediment to any compromise for a single competition next year. I've always said that I would not want to stand in the way of any negotiations which could bring the two camps together. See, that's magnanimous. You can't help but like the guy. For all the ex-players we trash on here, he's one of the wiser ones Yeah, yeah. in administration. I think something that's very telling is an interview that I'm going to be referencing a few times over the course of this chapter, but an interview, I think it was in early 2022, it's on the Manly YouTube page, between Zorba and Arco, and it's basically a, a career retrospective of you know Arco's life in rugby league. Um, it's fantastic. I think it's a four-parter, fantastic interview series. Um, when Zorba asked him about John Rebo and, you know, oh, would you ever have a beer with him? Arco was, it was just like, oh, no, no. You know, I always respected John and, you know, that hasn't changed. He had a differing opinion uh, of me at the time, but, you know, that I didn't lose respect for him. That's really magnanimous too. Like, those two guys are so likable. Yeah. And then that reminds me of my life's goal is to make a Zorba documentary, The Ultimate Barnacle. <laughs> King of the Barnacles. <laughs> <laughs> so Rebo steps down and uh, Colin Sanders was brought in as his replacement mid-1997. I don't remember Colin Sanders. Well, his role in the story is very slight, really. So I bring him up at this point more to set us up for the season where you will be hearing his name sprinkled throughout. So he was brought in basically to handle the day-to-day -day administration of the Super League competition. So he had nothing to do with the peace talks. He was just there to oversee the competition. It's astonishing they even got it off the ground. 
the actual logistics of it. Yeah, yeah. So he had a strong track record, uh, had been the CEO of the Royal Agricultural Society. So, <laughs> so they were headhunting the heavy hitters then. I love this in the article about him coming in. He was heavily involved in the Royal Easter Show's move from Moore Park to Homebush. <laughs> so we're not in the 70s, you know, with the, the brawling rugby league pre-Humphreys era. We're in the post-Tina Turner's $500 million input from national media company era, and they're going to the Royal Show guy. If only he came a couple of years earlier, we could have replaced Winfield with Birdie Beatles. <laughs> Uh, halftime entertainment would have been that woodchopper Dave. <laughs> Perfect. David Foster. Dave Foster. <laughs> I think that's the first, the first woodchopping <laughs> reference in, in this series. I don't think that's the first. I think we've mentioned it before. <laughs> so that's kind of Rebo leaving the story, you know, but obviously he went to Melbourne. He never strayed too far from rugby league. So he's still very much going to be an active participant in our series. But I think it's a good chance to kind of weigh up the legacy as a whole. And I think we've done some of that already. But one thing I think is that I think he was a very strong administrator. And in a United competition under different circumstances, I think he could have been like a very good administrator of the game. He just wasn't cut out for the role that was kind of hoisted upon him in 1995. We've talked about it before. You're swimming with sharks, and those guys didn't have shark cages. Yeah. Argo, Rebo, Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. Like the heaviest of heavyweights. So yeah. It's crazy. So how can you mock a guy for being overrun by them? No, exactly. And I think the thing about Rebo is all his interviews after the fact, like he just remains a very dignified figure in rugby league. Yeah. No outlandish um, threats and yeah. Sitting people on their ass, etc. Let's not discount the uh, Melbourne Storm. He was there to start that juggernaut off in a positive fashion. Yeah, yeah. Could have exactly. went south. Yeah. Could have been a um, Adelaide Rams situation. Yeah, yeah. And just the fact that it was him running it with all the yeah. you know vitriol we've talked about, like to be able to overcome that and you know get the Melbourne Storm going. Yeah, it's interesting to look back on it now. It's like I kind of feel about it in the way I did at the start. I respect him and I feel sorry for the way he was treated, but in the same respect, he made some poor moves. Yeah. But you've got the Brisbane legacy. It'll never be forgotten in rugby league. No, exactly. And it's kind of a shame that the first line of his rugby league story is Super League, whereas this is a guy who had a long playing career. Test player. Test player, got the Broncos up and running, You know, had a lot of success at all levels of the game, and I think... His bigger rugby league story kind of begins and ends with Super League. Well, yeah. It was like Franz Ferdinand had a life before uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as well. So once you dip your toe in that world. <laughs> I mentioned Ian Frickberg. This is probably a good place to introduce him. So he kind of a lot like Sam Chisholm was a former Packer guy who went to Murdoch and had you know a lot of success working in News Limited, was brought back from England to kind of oversee the whole Super League operation to, to bring peace. This name was synonymous with this era. I mm. heard it every day of my life yeah. this era. Frickberg, Frickberg. Well, it's a name you don't forget. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so he, again, another connection to the Gough Whitlam era. <laughs> he, he was a former political correspondent for the Herald. And if you look at the front page of the Herald, 
on the 12th of November 1975. The leading story about the dismissal is by Ian Frickberg. Yeah, it's crazy. That's a major legacy. Yeah. Back when the newspapers meant something. Yeah, and, you know, came up through Channel 9, produced the Today Show, which was, you know, that was a juggernaut in the early but 90s. This is what I want to talk to you about. Like, we know we're in a totally different era when we're looking back at the Today Show and how important that was. Yeah. Like, it was literally like a can make or break careers, you know. It was on the Today Show yeah. this morning. <laughs> we watched by six million people. It was such a big deal. Like, you know, the Today Show, the Midday Show, A Current Affair. These were like, you know, major like temples. <laughs> so this was Ian Frickberg. And uh, we're not going to expand upon him because, you know, he's – Important in reunification, but not much else in terms of rugby league. So uh, I'll just read this. This was from a Herald article in January 1997 announcing his arrival on the scene and what he was there to do. He's been told by Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch to get the rugby league feud ended by Christmas, January at the latest. The two leagues can still link for next season as late as February. News wants a single competition owned by a single entity part owned by News with the championship between two divisions decided in an American-style Super Bowl. If this happens, news will have got what it wanted, at great cost. El Dorado, yeah. the Super Bowl. <laughs> uh, but other than that, he basically did what he was there to do. And again, that brings in the question of the idea of inevitability. If it wasn't him, they were probably going to get it anyway, but he was there to do it and he got the job done. So let's turn to the ARL side of things, which is obviously a much more uh, important part of the story when you consider the figures involved and the role they've played in the game and the role they've played in our story to date. So Quayle and Arthurson both left, uh, you know, Quayle late 96, Arthurson 1997. This was kind of uh, telegraphed with an earlier meeting in 1996 where there was going to be an administrative shakeup at the ARL. At that point, Ken Arthurson stepped down as executive chairman of the ARL, became non-executive chairman. So his role kind of was sidelined a bit, which temporarily pushed Quayle more to prominence. But ultimately what it meant was, when you think about the Super League War, you think about Arthurson and, you know, Quayle the lieutenant. And then Arthurson goes, Neil Whitaker comes in. It's easy to think of Whitaker as being Arco's replacement, but he was actually Quayle's replacement. Right. It was just that role got elevated. We, I always thought of him that way. Yeah, yeah. Osaka. Yeah. So it's interesting some of the reasons behind that. So when Arco talked about stepping down as executive chairman, he said, from my viewpoint, it's clear that I should give up some of the controls I have in order to allow the game to develop towards the year 2000. We're talking about a multi-million dollar corporation and we need to structure accordingly. We need to structure it in such a way that the fans are protected and the game is protected from any individual interests. There's something really telling to me in that last line about any individual interest. It's kind of like downgrading the position while he's still in it to avoid any potential successor having too much power, having the same powers that he did. <laughs> Poison pill. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, on one sense, it's kind of like pulling up the ladder behind him. Yeah. But on the other sense, it was probably necessary to kind of, you know. Yeah, it was necessary 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but that's Arco to a T. It's like he was the only man that could do that job. He knew it. And, yeah. You know, so everybody else needs to have some parameters set. Yeah. <laughs> 
So that was mid-1996. It was telegraphed that big changes were coming. And the first of those big changes was announced in November 1996, where Quayle decided that he was out, he was going to step down. All through last season, we had a newfound respect even more than we had before of Quayle as a man's man. And I didn't realize he was such a good businessman because that's just a smart move. It's an honorable thing to do. And then he gets picked up by the Olympic. Yeah. Like, yeah. To me, that's crazy. Like that's a heavyweight administration job and he could be painted as the next footballer, you know, likes to feud and punch on. Unless you can do your job, you're not getting that job. Well, and that's the thing. And the dynamic between Arco and Quayle, Arco was very much the old school. Arco was like a continuum of the, you know, the Frank Faces and yeah. the Bill Buckleys and, yeah. you know, having that cartel background. Like Arco was very much in the tradition of rugby league men and rugby league administrators. Quayle, like right from the outset, brought something different. Like even in 83, like he brought like a bigger business kind of nous and i think he always occupied that role within that partnership yeah dynamic duo for sure and so he announced that he was stepping down after he'd secured the optus funding as we talked about uh in our last chapter so after news limited won the second court case and the arl needed to get it together optus stepped in with their 200 million dollars it was quail who got that and then he thought well you know, that's me done. <laughs> I can't sit here with a straight face and hear that. Just like, come in, spinner. <laughs> it's like $200 million in the mid-90s. It's going to be well spent. You're, gonna get, you're definitely going to get your ROI on that, Optus. So as he stepped down, he, you know, apparently had a very uh, pertinent farewell speech where he didn't miss any of his targets and, you know, he wasn't going to go down without a fight. But it also gave an opportunity for people to reflect on his administration and what he was like to work for. And uh, my favourite one of those was Mickey Braithwaite, who we've talked about before, (laughs) ex-wife of Daryl Braithwaite. She was the pivotal connection to securing Tina Turner. Awesome. uh, And served for the entirety of Quayle's term as CEO in the league. She was his EA. So um, she'd been there with him right from the start and was there till the end. So Mickey Braithwaite was fiercely loyal to Quayle and someone who would go to war for him and did, as it turns out. And I'll just read this quote. This was a Lisa Olson article who we've mentioned before, American journalist who came out to Australia in the early 90s, like knew nothing about rugby league at the time and then was thrown into the middle of this <laughs> war and wrote some, like, fantastic articles in the process. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, shout-out to Lisa Olson. This was the article she wrote relating to Mickey Braithwaite. She watched his face turn white during the Super League war, the bags under his eyes growing alarmingly dark and his weight drop, and she was frightened by his mental and physical exhaustion. But even then, he would always find time to make sure that we were holding up. Almost all of us have been here for 13 years, and it's because of John Quayle that we've stayed so long. We don't get paid overtime, but I can't tell you how many times during the court cases we stayed and worked late, because that's the kind of loyalty John generates. It's awesome. Yeah, it's nice, and I think it tells you a lot about Quayle, but what tells you even more about Quayle is what we've already talked about, his (laughs) uh, very strong personality, uh, which meant that there was never going to be peace with Quayle there. And he was very aware of that and 
from 1995 onwards, he'd always said that he wasn't going to let himself get in the way of peace. And, you know, finally it came to a head in November 1996. And this is what he said about that. If it's another trigger to peace, it's terrific. To rebuild it back to its greatness, you need to be united. We didn't start this. We did what the 20 clubs asked to do on the 20th of February, to fight for the rights of the game. If it meant either of us standing down at any time, I would have. You know, he had to put in, <laughs> we didn't start this. <laughs> we did what the clubs wanted. <laughs> I would be disappointed if he didn't let go on the way out. You know? Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, and as a result of that, he was of the mind that they needed to find someone independent of the war to replace him, someone who didn't carry any baggage from the war. And so I think we should leave Quayle with his baggage because <laughs> there was a lot of it. And I just love this, the idea of Quayle in the negotiation room when you see quotes like this. His eyes grew cold and hard when someone asked him if he had any parting words for News Limited. <laughs> like when his eyes are already quite cold and hard. <laughs> His eyes are cold and hard like getting his morning coffee from Mickey Breakaway. <laughs> oh, that's the best. <laughs> I mean, that's all obvious at this point. We don't need to harp on it. But I think it's worth talking about some of his specific like issues with the way the war progressed and, and the way that impacted on him. Like, I think that idea of loyalty and that idea of integrity that was very important to him yeah and when that was being questioned it was you know greatly affecting him mentally so the court proceedings itself were quite hard on him i think just because of the questions that get put to you in court so by his words the lowest point in the saga was when uh, news limited subpoenaed his financial records he said they wanted all my financial details and those of the chairman including details of payments received from winfield and channel nine Fair dinkum. I've never even taken a carton of cigarettes, not even been on their boat, always paid for lunch. It was the lowest trick in the book. To suggest we were paid by Rothmans and Nine was an insult. Like they're going to take his word for it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know you, were, um, you had a high opinion of your own integrity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not going to check in this um, $5 billion court case. This is the thing. Like, I can understand him, you know, taking personal offense to it, but shouldn't he also realize that, like, this is a multi-million dollar court case. And this is pretty standard practice that <laughs> that would happen. Well, I was blown away in your preparation notes that they didn't take anything from Rothmans. Like, to me, that's part of the deal. you got this giant sponsorship with this blood money. Why not have a few lunches? Yeah, yeah. Like, I would yeah. think in rugby league, that would be minimum. Yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah. the fact that they had the foresight to not take a dime or a carton of cigarettes, yeah. as it were... <laughs> How do you think Bullfrog would have gone (laughs) resisting the cartons of cigarettes? Well, I don't think Bullfrog would have paid for any cigarettes. (laughs) I think he wouldn't be getting the crate to the police club. Yeah. Just as it was. Yeah, yeah. Just because he wasn't around. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm sure a few metaphorical cartons of cigarettes were enjoyed by Quayle and the ARL, but I do believe his bigger thing about that integrity and wanting to be seen to be above board. Uh, And evidence of this comes from Quayle himself. When he talks about the early 80s, he said, When I first came to this job and Tom Bellew was president of the New South Wales Rugby League, Channel 7 had the TV rights. The chairman of 7, Alan Healy, invited Tom to go to the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. Tom was desperate to go, but he eventually agreed with me that it could come back against us. So we sent Tom to the Super Bowl the next year, and he hated it. 
that makes my day because I'm right with Tom Bellew on that <laughs> five-hour freaking game, all about the dancing girls and Beyonce. Who cares? Um, so do you think that would have been written off as a research mission? <laughs> We've already been hit under the ribs with a stiff uh, metaphorical tackle from Jeff Bellew QC, so we'll tread carefully here. <laughs> um, yeah, too funny. <laughs> i got to get your opinion on this. One of the other things that bothered Quayle about the court proceedings was the fact that they brought up that Ken Arthurson's wife, Barbara, had been paid $13,000 as part of Arco's salary package. He said, that was the lowest cheap shot you could get. Ken's package is modest by executive standards, and it was put together by the league's auditors as a careful and standard package. People don't understand how much demand there is on the wives of our top officials. The phones start ringing at 6 a.m. and go right through. To me, that's amazing. Like, if you want 13 grand extra, fine. Why have her on the books? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, don't all wives have husbands at work? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and their phones ring on their wall, you know? Like, And, I mean, the fact that they do put it on the book shows you that there's nothing kind of underhanded about no, it. No, it's just odd. Yeah, it's just odd. And also, if you can pay Barb 13K, what about some overtime for Mickey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the same respect, those rugby league wives, you know, they'd be as loyal as they come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like basically a a third arm. And I think that's why it's not an underhanded thing. It's not trying to, you know, swindle anyone. It's more a token of respect. Yeah. By the husband, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, put your name on the books. You're doing enough for this cause. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So there's something quite sweet about it, really. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of at odds with this, you know, business that they were in and (laughs) – it's another juxtaposition on modern verse. All yeah, that. yeah, yeah, totally. But so Quayle was thoroughly burnt out by the time he resigned. And the best statement I saw was uh, a quote from Roy Masters, football is now his prison. By the end of the war, he had no escape. It was just a 24-hour job. If he ever left and, you know, had his weekly tennis match or, you know, was in the Hunter Valley, you know, on his property or whatever. If anyone saw him, the first thing they wanted to talk about was the war. And- yeah. It must feel like um, a real big celebrity. Leo DiCaprio walks down the street. I loved you, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Bess, a prick. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I think on top of being burnt out, he was just thoroughly disillusioned. So... He was disillusioned with the court outcome. I think those proceedings took a real toll on him. And the final conclusion, Quayle said, the court has said that as long as you do things underhanded, it's okay. It's hard for any organisation to come to grips with the fact that it's legal to secretly plot to take half a game's assets. I really feel for him because he's a man of honour, right? And I'm a part-time man of honour, despite the dishonourable things I do. (laughs) And like when you deal with things you find dishonorable it's sickening yeah yeah and he he sickened yeah exactly and i think that sense of loyalty was a a really strong thing as well so one of the real sticking points with him was three of the four new clubs in 1995 jumping to super league he said one of my main regrets is that we do not charge the new clubs a franchise fee for joining where's the loyalty the new clubs showed to the foundation clubs which voted them in it's the old chestnut, we're back to that again. Like, do they owe other people loyalty or do they have to run their own business, you know? <laughs> it's true, but I, like, I would be furious if, like, I brought these clubs oh, in. It's abhorrent, but, yeah. again, is it a business or a social yeah, club? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think it raises an interesting point. So this was in 1997 when Neil Whitaker had taken over. 
And Ken Cowley had a quote, part of the problem is that they have different names. Super League aspires to be a national game, whereas the ARL don't. <laughs> Wait, that's bad. This was Whitaker's rebuttal to that. If we never had national aspirations, why did we set up the clubs which subsequently went to Super League? Right. So Super League trumpet like they're the national game. Right, right, right. We've got Auckland. We've got the Cowboys. We've got Perth. And it's like, who put them in place? Yeah, like, yeah. mistakes were made. The model wasn't perfect. But you can't say that the ARL didn't have a broader vision or weren't desirous of a national competition. Agreed. The argument for them is like the game was at the peak of its powers in 94, but it was strength to strength. If they had another 20 years running along, do you reckon they would have got national? I, I think they would have. And, and I should have said at the start, if you haven't heard it for a while, it might be a good idea to go back and listen to our very first Super League episode where we replayed our old Arco History Corner segment. Yeah. When we talked about that, the idea that they were kind of, you know, bringing the new teams in and with a view to rationalising down the track, I was sceptical of that at that point. But now I think that was a very real plan. I think they had a vision for a national competition. Vision. That, yeah, <laughs> that included less Sydney teams. It was just the model of doing it like they didn't have the time for. We were always flippant and jocular about the fact that they would never get around to doing the rationalisation. But it's not probably through lack of trying, it's through the ability of rugby league clubs to survive like cockroaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we'll talk about it a bit at the end. But the fact is that they did get rid of Newtown. They tried to get rid of West. Like, they had, like, these ideas and, you know, were kind of thwarted on What's funny, though, they had the stick, they offered the big carrot, the bigger carrot, bigger stick. Yeah. Nothing worked. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but so it wasn't just the new clubs that frustrated Quail, it was the old clubs as well. So one of the driving things was so he'd secured the $200 million and coming spinner. And rather than the clubs feeling thankful for that, the first thing they did was to get together and ask for a restoration of the $35,000 <laughs> they used to get for the TV coverage on the Saturday. And that was to come out of the ARL's pockets. This was brought up by Norths at a meeting. It was, you know, a motion put forward. It was agreed to uh, by all clubs except for South, West, Gold Coast and Balmain. So Quail's response to this was, the poor clubs were grateful for what they got. But here were the money clubs wanting more than the $2 million they each got from Optus Vision. They wanted the TV money to come from the ARL revenue. Not one person stood up to thank Quail for all his efforts in securing the rescue package. <laughs> well, that's a very rugby league scenario, right? Like, yeah. I deserve to be thanked. Right? Yeah. And then also, it's like, no hide, no Christmas box. Just, <laughs> just <laughs> where's the 35? Yeah. <laughs> I just love that days after, like, you know, the game's about to fall apart. <laughs> the game's rescued. You're given $2 million. <laughs> and you just come straight back cap in hand. <laughs> Well, not even that, just no cap. Where's my money? <laughs> and then on top of that, there were leaks to the press where one club official called for Arco and Quayle to resign. <laughs> and this is another great quote about his position, um, that since April Fool's Day, he'd been living a locked-off dream. So start of 1995, he was kind of thinking about leaving anyway. So he brought Origin to Melbourne in 1994, had the, you know, an aerial shot of a full MCG, like 
he had that framed and put on his wall. Like, Isn't that really heartwarming? Yeah, yeah. And this was kind of part of the proof that they were committed on expansion and it was going to take time. But for him, getting a full MCG in 94, that was a big deal. It is an achievement, especially in that era, right? But they would get on opening of an envelope down there. Yeah, if yeah. If we're being realistic. I think for Quail, it was a starting point. And then you had bring in the four new clubs in February 95. Like, it was kind of for him, it was kind of job done. He was planning to, yeah. like, ride off into the sunset, having accomplished his goals. Well, I think more impressive was, like, the crowds in Adelaide for club games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was impressive. Yeah. They did so much good in that respect. And I think Quayle felt that they got the game to this point and it was only going to expand and he could just sit back in retirement and look at, you know, what he'd help build flourish. And then instead, he's living this lopped off dream. Instead of like riding out in glory, he got the 200 mil, gave it to greedy clubs who couldn't give a shit. Putting it through an incinerator as he was handing it to them. (laughs) (laughs) Should I give it to you and put it in or just put it straight in the incinerator? What What do you reckon? So it's sad. It's a sad ending for him. And I think because of that, When he left Rugby League, he really needed to leave Rugby League and move on. So he went straight to SOCOG. He was, even in 95, 96, there was talk of him coming on board to SOCOG. So So impressed by that. Yeah. And um, so I think he was kind of headhunted by SOCOG. Well, have a look at the success of the games. Yeah. Part of that, something special. And then following SOCOG, he ended up being part of a consultancy group who worked on the Athens Olympics and a number of games either side of it. So Ultimate 90s there, consultancy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a consultant. <laughs> so this is just a little aside. I love this, that it was reported uh, that, I'll read the quote. There was an angry reaction from News Limited boss Ken Cowley to Quail's placement. According to SOCOG sources, he told officials, if you've got Quail, you don't have us. If this is right, it implies News Limited would be prepared to pull out of a $25 million sponsorship with the group. As it turns out, that was not right. <laughs> News Limited weren't willing to walk away from the Olympics <laughs> because of a domestic rugby league squabble. But if the shoe was on the other foot, Quail would have pulled out $25 million <laughs> if News Limited were involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. 100%. <laughs> is that just the most myopic like <laughs> rugby league journo brain like you've ever heard <laughs> the olympic games in australia yeah. we, don't, we don't want any part of that <laughs> that will not sell any products <laughs> being associated with that event just how do they like how do they go to the trouble of you know typing <laughs> this out like sending it through to editors and like, like how do they not at some point? <laughs> well, this is the question. Do you think they believe any of this baloney or, or they just, it's a tongue in cheek thing? Yeah, I guess those, you know, the last word, the what's the buzz, all those like kind of horseshit columns, yeah. that, like in the Sunday, which pages, are the funniest like, of all time. They're, they're, they're so good. Like, I don't think what's the buzz was there in, in 96, but it was um, Mr. Walker, the man they all fear. I think that might have been a bit before as well. Was it? But, you know, your Gladys Cravens, all, all, all the Sunday, like, our series would be nothing without those. Like, just the greatest, like, dumb articles that, like, yeah, like so I, I love it. Yeah. So, so 
Quayle moved on to SOCOG, and it was kind of like the perfect role to allow him to do what he needed to do, which was just to move on. So his quote was, when I left, I had to get on with my life. And so the anger was still there, the feelings were still there, but he just, you know, had to move on. So you don't really see him talking too much in the press in 1997 about the war or or anything to do with it. He was just off and doing the SOCOG thing. Well, as usual for us, we're quite flippant about these guys and how funny they are, but it's his life's work and it's been undermined by these these animals. Yeah. Knock you around. No, totally. Uh, So the task came to choose a replacement and one quote I like to read about it was, so we had Phillips Street, Super League headquarters were on Elizabeth Street. So Roy Masters wrote, the new ARL CEO must be willing to walk at least to the David Jones corner. (laughs) While he was keen for an outsider, he actually sat on the panel to replace him. There was a list of candidates that uh, a consultancy firm again called Coopers and Librand came in to help with the search. I remember that. Yeah, they were big in the day. And maybe picked an unlikely uh, source. I'll read this. Coopers and Librand contacted me the other day. And I asked them not to put me on the short list that's given to the ARL. That was a quote by Graham Richardson, which <laughs> if he was on the list, I, I very strongly question the credentials of Coopers and my friends. A quote from Stilettos. <laughs> I think it's probably at least as likely that he was either like making the whole thing up to pump up his own tires oh, yeah. or they've come to him to ask him about his thoughts on a replacement. Right, right. And he's just gone, I'm, I'm not interested. Like, well, <laughs> yeah, thanks. We're, we're not either. <laughs> you never know with that guy. Though. Yeah. Like, it could be either way. Uh, so it kind of became a two-horse race between Neil Whitaker, who obviously got the job, and Malcolm Speed, who had just left the NBL. So he was responsible for selling his free-to-air rights to Fox, was he? Oh, I think that was a bit later. I thought that was, like, more... Was it? I, whoever, I could be wrong. Whoever did that shouldn't be in administration. Yeah, yeah. But he was known as, a, to quote a rugby league term, a shrewd operator. Yeah, he? well, and, you know, he kind of dodged a bullet in not getting the ARL gig because he went on to, yeah. you know, be chairman of the ACB. Yeah. Um, great success there. Uh, I think Did he go on to, like, the IOC or something? I feel he had some international post. I've only ever heard good results from him. Yeah. Neil Whitaker's a funny one because I always sort of um, just thought rate him off as like an uh, ex-player, you know, whatever. But your notes suggest that he was quite credentialed. Yeah, so he had a background in mechanical engineering, was on the board of a, you know, ASX top 100 listed company. So he had that, but he also like had the rugby league background as well, you know, played for Balmain and, you know, was boss of them before coming on into the the league. So I like this juxtaposition from Roy Masters. Whitaker is a former hooker in a foundation club, graduated in mechanical engineering and has worked in marketing and sales. I like how those two things are juxtaposed. (laughs) You know, like he was a hooker in a foundation club. (laughs) He's in the interview for uh, a non-rebelly position. Well, my education is this. I was a hooker in a foundation club. (laughs) As if the foundation club yeah. is different than any other club. <laughs> and the thing is, like, in rugby league, it kind of is. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, and, like, Quayle wanted an outsider. When talking about a successor to him himself, Arco said, it does help if you've pulled on the boots at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, 
what are we now, six years into this? I started off thinking we need to get away from ex-players. We need to, we need to, we need to. I don't think anybody else but ex-players yeah. can survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it, it's They eat you alive. Yeah. Unless you know how they think innately. Yeah. You, you got no chance. You know, and maybe it would be better for the game if we got a, to a point where that wasn't required. But, like, you'd probably lose something, like, very innate to the game if, if we, we did get to that point. See, a guy like Volandis mightn't have played, but he's a league man. Yeah. A knockabout. Well, it's an age-old question. And do you need a league man who cares a bit about finance? Or do you need a finance man who knows something about rugby league? I think I'd go that way. Yeah. Not something about, a fair bit about. So the latter, essentially a finance guy or a business guy, an outsider. An argument for that is David Gallup, who I think may be the best administrator of the NRL era. Yeah. The argument against David Smith is arguably the worst. Yeah. You know, so I think ultimately it comes down to the competence of the individual, but like you need to have credibility to the insiders and the outsiders. The David Smith thing was even more egregious because of his rah-rah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Vibe. Yeah. So I think what Whittaker did was to thread that needle pretty well. Like he had a business background. He was a rugby league insider. He was Balmain boss during the Super League War. So it's not that he had no baggage, but he managed to get through it all without burning bridges. So his quote on Super League was, I met with Ken Cowley and John Rebo. It was a very good meeting. We approached their invitation in an objective way and responded professionally. So it wasn't going to be like, you know, how dare you, you know, like, he managed to stick solid with the ARL without, you know, torching everything with News Limited. He did have the endorsement of George Piggins, which could have been a red flag. <laughs> but he was a strong administrator and he came in with the right spirit, which was we're looking to compromise, but it's going to be on our terms as much as possible. You know, I'm here to bring the ARL into a new era. And if that involves compromise with News Limited and one competition, that's great. But I'm focused on the ARL and, you know, doing the best for the ARL. Think about signing up for that job, though. You know, people that say, I like a challenge. I always think, yeah. why? <laughs> this is the ultimate challenge. <laughs> uh, so let's turn to Arco, who had been struggling for a while. Like, you know, he was 65 years old at the time. The stress of Super League, the you know, working till midnight every night, you know, back in the office at 6 a.m. It was taking a real toll on him physically and mentally. You know, he had a health scare in 1996 and... Nobody, and they're all gambling men, you know, nobody would have put a cent for him to make 90. No, no. For him to just be, like, doing so well, yeah. it seems. And, like, that interview I said, which um, we'll have to post it on our socials, like, a really good overview of, you know, his place in the game and, you know, particular his place within the Manly Club. Yeah. Uh, but a true rugby league survivor who didn't look like he was going to survive, you know, halfway through 1996. Yeah. So I think a few things were happening anyway in his life to make him think about walking away. But undoubtedly, the trigger of the whole thing was Channel 9's announcement in mid-January 1997 that they had negotiated for the free-to-air rights of Super League. <laughs> Talk about dishonourable. And so this came at around the same time that the ABC announced that they'd be covering Super League on Sunday afternoons, which left the ARL's free-to-air position, you know, like quite undermined. But so the extra dagger for the ARL 
was that the Super League deal was specifically for Monday night football, which, as we talked about in our last season, that was the one shining light for the ARL in 1996. <laughs> you know, it was like a rousing success. It was, you know, bringing them crowds, bringing them TV ratings, and the first thing Channel 9 do is to, <laughs> you know, ruin it and, and go with Super League instead. And as we'll talk about in our next chapter, when I mean ruin it, like it's a nuclear level <laughs> ruination of Monday Night Football. Uh, but in case you want to just, you know, castigate Nine for this disloyalty and for this destabilization of the ARL, I think it's fair that, you know, Nine have their say. So apparently Nine officials resent the ARL perception they are bad boys. They claim that had they allowed Channel 7 to outbid them for Super League rights, there would have been another player in the war already involving media organisations Optus, Foxtel, News Limited and Nine. They believe it would have turned a messy war into a fight to the death. <laughs> so very magnanimous <laughs> from Channel 9 there. God, they're awful, aren't they? Optus were apparently shattered by the development, to which I will issue a giant who gives a fuck, Optus. <laughs> Optus shareholders are just like, what in the hell? <laughs> 200 million. When are we getting that back? <laughs> but they're a business channel line. So they're thinking, well, it's looking like it's going Super League's way. We, yeah. need, we need to get with the winners. Yeah. It's a bit easy to sit here 30 years later and mock them. But yeah. They had to pick a side eventually. Yeah, exactly. So. Whatever Channel 9 were thinking, what it did for Ken Arthurson was to just kill the last, you know, ounce of fight he had left. So his quote, and I think we said that in this episode one, but I'll say it again. Channel 9's move dragged me down about as far as it was possible for a fundamentally positive person like myself to go. I just started to feel that I couldn't take it anymore. And when I started to think like that, I was also figuring I'm not going to be much use to anybody if I'm in this frame of mind. His innate positivity is such an underrated quality. Yeah, yeah. As a pessimist, you sort of live in this state of like, ugh. Yeah. It's like awful way to live. Yeah, and I think that was obvious to everyone in the game and everyone who knew him, so much so that one leading Super League player who was unnamed uh, when the Channel 9 deal was announced said, I almost rang him on Sunday night to say how sorry I was about Channel 9 deserting him. Now I wish I had. <laughs> Which are you getting Loz vibes from that? Unnamed, but like <laughs> really Loz vibes. So who leaked that? Was that um Simon Gillies' wife talking <laughs> with her friends over the fence? So that was, you know, the key trigger behind Arco leaving. And you feel for him, you know, like talking about handshake deals and the fact that he thought that he had an ally. <laughs> he really needed to move to the pen deal. Earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Say about 75, if you change to fountain pens from handshakes, yeah. a lot easier. I know. So is he a victim or is he just an easy mark? You know, <laughs> like, I think like as boss of the game, he did have a responsibility to approach things in a more business-like manner. So his quote was, really the worst feature from our end of this Channel 9 deal is that we firmly believe that Nine, Optus and the ARL would march arm in arm and be the staunchest of allies. To see Nine as the opposition now is very disappointing. And so even framing them as the opposition, like, misses the mark. That's not what they are. Like, they're a corporate partner whose aims and interests will occasionally align with the aims and interests of the ARL. Yeah. But, like, 
Not often, mind you. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. So you've got to treat them like that. Don't treat them as the people beside you in the trenches. If they're a movie character, they'd be freighter. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, they're the worst. So very tough on Arco. Also very tough on uh, a relationship that fell out in the aftermath, which was Phil Gould and James Packer, who didn't, you know, James Packer was on the East board, Gould obviously the coach, and, you know, both of them, you know, very pivotal figures in the ARL fight back in 1995. On top of the nine decision, James Packer suggested at a discussion with Bozo and Gus a possibility of the two clubs moving to Super League. Basically, uh, Gus like was furious and didn't talk to Packer for months afterwards uh, until a peace summit at a, I'm assuming, a cafe meeting brokered by Wayne Beavis to try to get them to come together again. Let me ask you this. How many peace breakfasts has Gus attended in his career? <laughs> It might be the reason why he's so no, hefty. Yeah, I, I think there was a early 2000s, I think he had a fortnightly one with uh, <laughs> Sticky. <laughs> How many is Wayne Beavis broken? Yeah. <laughs> I know this is a big thing for you in our series. They're like, you know, who cares if they're not having lunch at, you know, the Chinese restaurant anymore when our game is, you know, like falling apart. Like to me, this is the most classic example of this. The fact that it was like reported on for like, you know, for yeah. months, you know, like, oh, Gus and James Packer aren't talking, you know, oh, wait, they are now. They've they've had a meeting. Oh, who gives a toss? But I've got to say, I've got um, respect for Gus about that. We both know that this made him as a figure and gave him gravitas and lined his pockets nicely but he was staunch yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah totally there was never any question of his loyalty so arco goes it was you know basically a last minute decision to do it like the board meeting where he announced that he was stepping down like no one saw it coming and that was on the the 22nd of january he stayed on until the end of february and on that last day there was a big send-off for him which uh Ian Heads was there to write about it, and he said, The New South Wales Rugby League has had only eight chairmen, and three of them were at the Leagues Club on Friday night. Arthurson, his predecessor Tom Bellew, and Kevin Humphreys. Humphreys was one of only three speakers. His talk was described by one of the guests as one of the most powerful dressing room talks I've ever heard. Wow. Uh, And then I, I like this. Although never mentioned by name, it was unmistakable whom Humphreys referred to when he spoke of the betrayal of a former league official. <laughs> Humphreys, like, um, for a guy who left in disgrace, yeah. was throwing around a lot of grenades. You know? I know. It's so funny, the bullfrog thing, the fact that everyone but Arco, like, just yeah. hated him from that point on, yeah, yeah. despised him, would have been in the boardroom, like, bag him every day and Arco like just I don't know what he would have been like in the boardroom when that was happening if any friendship deserves any sort of consideration in this whole war that's that one yeah but still doesn't deserve much consideration no 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 and and I think the fact that we devoted an entire chapter yeah. to that friendship is probably enough so I don't want to harp on it but um but I think in a way these friendships are really important and that one in particular the severing of bullfrogs relationship with the ARL, this was the kind of like the last nail in the coffin of the cartel and that yeah. old style of administration. Yeah. And it was an era that had ended, but you had all this like 
historical residue and you know and you did still have the long lunches and the you know the backroom deals and they were very much like brothers because they had the rivalry you know club versus club but this was a real betrayal yeah it's like sleeping with your brother's wife yeah type thing yeah still brothers but yeah and it's funny because like the betrayal hurt him so much but he seemed to like it wasn't about the betrayer. He like easily forgave the betrayer, but yeah. not the betrayal. Like yeah. he carried the sadness of that throughout, but within months was like, you know, meeting Bullfrog for lunch again. So it's almost like a cathartic this episode because you get to distill down your feelings on these these guys. And Rebo got respect for how um, dignified he's been through massive vitriol. Quail, honorable man, man's man. Arco. Just a just a really good fellow. Yeah. Just a good, good man. Mm, yeah. And I think you mentioned the respectability of Rebo. When Arthurson did step down in February 1997, I really liked this quote from Rebo. Ken's contributions to rugby league have been marvellous. I genuinely wish Ken all the best in retirement. I'd be very happy to sit down with him and have a beer and talk about rugby league. I don't know if he'd like to do the same thing, though. Like, to me, this is the exact opposite of, you know, the Kerry Packer praising Ken Cowley. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's all a game. Yeah. Like, for me, this is more like it's not just a game. Like, the game matters. Yeah. And I respect what Ken has done for this game. And yeah. what, you know, like, Arco brought him to Manly, you know, like they had like a long standing relationship. So, like Quail, Arco didn't get the ending he thought he was going to get or maybe the ending he deserved. He left with a lot of betrayal. Similarly, we've talked about Bullfrog, which we don't need to go on about again, but he was similarly upset about the betrayal from the new clubs. And he said, one of my biggest regrets in my experience is bringing Auckland into our competition with the best (laughs) of possible intentions. We wanted to give the game in New Zealand a lift. Then we found before a ball had hardly been kicked that Auckland had defected from the ARL. <laughs> this was like the kind of, and I guess he was hurting, so I can kind of forgive the sentiment, but like one of his lasting legacies is bringing Auckland into yeah. the competition. He wasn't to know that. No, he wasn't to know that. But but they also treated him like second cousins from the start. Yeah. So mm. it is absolutely abhorrent to bite the hand that fed you before the meal's even over. <laughs> but, but like they've defected before a ball was kicked. But the, mate, the garlic bread hadn't even been brought out. <laughs> no, not even the meal, you're right. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's still some blame there from yeah treating them like little um, yeah yeah little brother. I think there is a lack of perspective in some of Arco's comments at the time. And again, I can definitely understand that. But you know, one of the other betrayals was you know he said. Through this last year, I wondered what became of journalistic ethics. It's surely the responsibility of the press to do their utmost to tell the true story to the public, and that goes a long way beyond just rugby league and sport. I've no doubt that in much of the News Limited reporting of the last year, there was editorial instruction, which, you know, yeah, of course there was. But the thing is that, like, when you talk about people like Frelengos and the ARL's relationship with the Telegraph prior to the Super League War, it was a very cosy, you know, mm. some would argue too cosy yeah. relationship. So, like, <laughs> I think you could argue that he and the ARL had benefited from that same lack of journalistic ethics. And so, unlike Quail, Arco didn't really have anything to move on to, whereas Quail kind of made a clean break. 
Arco like never really left and throughout the next year he was often in the press like you know throwing out barbs to Super League and you know <laughs> so I just thought I'd read a couple of choice ones it started with his farewell speech at the ARL he declared that if any of the 12 loyal ARL clubs left for Super League now they would never be able to hold their head up again challenged the federal government to show enough guts to protect TV rights <laughs> Um, you know, it said Canberra should get down on their friggin' knees anytime anyone from the New South Wales Rugby League walks past them. That special hatred for Canberra. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Kevin Neal. Uh, well, Kevin Neal actually came. Oh, no, sorry, it wasn't Kevin Neal. It was Les McIntyre came back and said, Arthurson's been squawking for the past couple of years how he and the New South Wales Rugby League saved the Raiders back in 91. If my memory serves me right, the only thing he did was to give us a bank guarantee of $300,000. That was the exact amount that was due to all clubs as a grant. Then they fined us $185,000 for breaches of the salary cap. <laughs> it was the people of Canberra with the Save the Raiders Fund and Queebian Leagues Club who saved the Raiders. What's he supposed to do, allow the salary cap cheating? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. All he did was give us our normal <laughs> grant and then fined us for breaching the salary for, cap. For gross cheating. <laughs> Uh, and then the Broncos was the other predictable target of Arthurson's ire, said. The Broncos, well, Avarice just totally dominated them. Their greed was such they were doing terrifically well, yet they just wanted more and more. So that was in February, uh, saying goodbye to the ARL. In May 1997, he came out and said, compromise isn't spelled S-U-R-R-E-N-D-E-R. It's strange that there's talk about peace in one breath and Super League's expanding into Melbourne in the next breath. You've got to give and take. You can't say to the Sydney teams, we expect you to amalgamate and not expect Canterbury, Penrith and Cronulla to do the same. Good point. Good point. And the same with the Melbourne thing. So they announced it later in the year when, you know, there was the ARL playing a origin game in Melbourne. You had these ongoing compromise talks going and Super League are just announcing unilaterally that they'll be starting a Melbourne team in 1998. Insane. Yeah. So Arco to that said, fair dinkum. I've been, I, I love the fair dinkum. You know, <laughs> like you got to start your most like hateful quotes with fair dinkum. <laughs> fair dinkum. I've been biting my tongue up until now. But what Super League did this week is the last straw as far as I'm concerned. I'm now utterly convinced they were never genuine in this supposed desire for compromise. Where's the good faith in that? What it showed is that they haven't changed. They are playing the same garbage games they've played all along. I honestly believe at this moment that enough is enough. Why expect them to be in good faith? They literally backdoored your competition yeah. every step of the way. No, I support Arco in this just that like when the supposed aim is to get the two competitions together. Even my point is how is he surprised by it? Yeah, 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 no, yeah. It's like yeah. that's what they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think in that sense, maybe it's fair that, like, I think by the end of 1997, Arco was the more hardline one than Quayle. Quayle had kind of, his mind was elsewhere. Like, Arco was still just seething. And by late 1997, he was at the point where he was almost Piggins-esque in his, <laughs> his view towards compromise. He said, put the bloody pressure back on them. I became sick and tired of them trying to induce our clubs away. It's about time they got a bit of their own medicine back. I'd put a cat right among the pigeons. <laughs> the message I kept getting from the fans couldn't have been plainer. Tell them to go jump. 
<laughs> See, a lot of that, I think, would be a guy who wishes he still had his hand on the rudder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could still be in there doing absolutely, this. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And then not having his hand on the rudder just gave him ample time to think about, you know, See those who've been betrayed him. So on the Broncos, he said he wouldn't have the Broncos in a United competition in any circumstances. <laughs> yeah, right. He said the of the Warriors, they shouldn't be in the competition. What have they ever done for Australian rugby? <laughs> The open anti-warrior sentiment has just been accepted yeah, yeah. since day dot. Yeah. You'll hear it now. Yeah. It's the national rugby league. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I think this fed into his – he was addressing a crowd um, at a Steelers function in December 1997. Uh, that would be a ball. <laughs> Jeez. He said, you've done it tough. You've come up the hard way, but by gee, you've been a credit to the game. Why should you be placed in a position where you could be disadvantaged and clubs like Melbourne, Adelaide, Auckland be given a walk-up start. The Johnny-come-latelys that have done nothing for the game of rugby league, as opposed to a club like this that has been nothing but a credit to the game. I'd call them a blip on the radar. <laughs> yeah, well, they are. And um, apologies to all Steelers fans, but came into the competition broke, stayed broke for 15 years, had little on-field success in that time. Uh, but a very important region, a very important competition I love the Steelers, but to say you've been nothing but a credit to the game, yeah. where like the Broncos printing money from '88, <laughs> like uh, you know, but like they had their own fiefdom, yeah, like Newcastle or the Broncos, yeah, <laughs> unlike the Broncos, Newcastle and the Steelers, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come in broken, remain broken. <laughs> that tells you a lot about where Arco's head was at by the end of 1997. Even on you know the future of Sydney teams, he said. It may be difficult for some Sydney sides to stay one out, but I can't see too much wrong with a 20-team competition. Like, if after all of this, you still think that that could happen, you know, it's... It's just an absolute mess. So then it came to replacing Arthurson. So uh, there was some speculation of, you know, Quayle talking about it, an outsider. There was the likes of Bernie Fraser. See, that makes my day. If people are young listening to this, he was famous for an ad, um, a superannuation ad with this comical. Yeah. What was his voice like? It, it was, was like, like the Sandman from Triple J. Yeah, yeah. The, it was like a. Yeah. Comical voice. Yeah. So he's been impersonated by it all and sundry. Smart guy. Well, yeah, like chairman of the Reserve Bank or whatever. Smartest but it just guy. Sounds like. Yeah. If, if he was like, there's no way really people would have respected that no. voice. <laughs> John the Mexican like gets like <laughs> ten times the respect that uh, Bernie Fraser would have got. So uh, Nick Griner, you know, recent New South Wales Premier w- was on the list. That wouldn't have went over well. No, Liberal Party, Liberal guy, state politics. Yeah, not a good mix with no. rugby league. Is state politics a good mix with anything? <laughs> <laughs> I still remember the bumper stickers, Nick the prick. <laughs> Uh, and an insider was Ron Coote, who, you know, kind of like Whitaker, had the business now with his McDonald's empire. But... <laughs> I don't know if buying a few franchises when they're on the way up yeah. is, uh, you know, I don't know if he's a business genius. but no. I always love that quote by Ron Coote where he, you know, was talking about his career and he says, like, I've got just as many friends from McDonald's as I do from rugby league. <laughs> But having him as the figure would have been great. Rhyming slang as the boss of the league. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and one other name, uh, which I, I want to get your thoughts on, 
George Piggins mooted as the. Oh. <laughs> we want someone without any baggage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know we're, we're heading to compromise. We need to get the two competitions together. <laughs> we want someone with uh, some open views, open mind, and <laughs> calm demeanor. <laughs> It will not resort to violence. Yeah, you know, <laughs> someone who will walk to David Jones without a bag of explosives. <laughs> Can you imagine if they picked him? On the replacement, George Pegan said, I just hope they bring in someone who's strong because no one is going to make me work with the sort of people they've got at Super League. If there's one comp next year, the ARL should run it. And if not, there'll be two. It's as simple as that. <laughs> What's funny about this whole thing is... They bring in a News Limited lawyer and he's the greatest administrator yeah, yeah, ever. Yeah. And again, it just shows you like how quickly the public were willing to forget about it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there was maybe a little bit at the start of, you know, there, there was definitely talk about News Limited running the game. If something but, went wrong for an ARL club, they'd go, yeah, typical News Limited. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it just faded away. Yeah. But by and large, I don't think Gallup is really thought of as a News Limited guy no. at all, like now. See, if I met him, I'd love to shake his hand and thank him for his contribution to the game. But if you met Arco, all you hear is people going like, you yeah, know, they screwed your mate. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like where his achievements are not recognized. Yeah. Mm. That's the sad thing. Yeah. I think he'd like to be known as, you know, a great administrator, which he was. Yeah, yeah, totally. So in the end, it was John McDonald who became Arco's successor. Uh, and this kind of caused problems right from the start. So he was a Queensland guy, uh, didn't get along with Whittaker. They had a strained relationship. Couldn't they just get two blokes that worked together in this situation? Well, so this is what they tried to do. So later in 1997, there was a factional plot to replace McDonald with Warren Lockwood, who you know was the St. George guy who was on the board. So basically, New South Wales had the numbers because... As chairman, McDonald didn't get a vote until all the other votes were cast. So there were four New South Wales directors, four Queensland. So Whittaker essentially had the casting vote. So it was the big plan that they were going to get rid of McDonald. Lockwood would come in as chairman. Uh, and then you'd get Bob Millward and Nick Politis coming in to the ARL board as New South Wales representatives as well. So that was the plan. Uh, it was foiled when one of the New South Wales board members defected and voted for McDonald. <laughs> How'd they get to him? Well, so it was Tom Bellew was the one who defected. Did he? So he was running the Gold Coast at the time. So I don't know if, I honestly don't know the reasoning behind him jumping ship. I don't know if it had something to do with how things were going in the Gold Coast and the support they were getting from the league. Uh, but regardless, it meant the plan was foiled and McDonald would stay on as president. It also meant that Nick Politis missed out on the board position and he was seen to be visibly upset leaving the meeting uh, with one source claiming he was walking out saying it was a waste of time. <laughs> there was a threat of legal action because Bellew was actually retiring. So the New South Wales rugby league argument uh, was that he shouldn't have got a vote because he was retiring. Didn't have a problem with him voting before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in the end, they went down another more familiar route, which was to knife one of their own. So <laughs> to get Politis on the board, they kicked David Barnhill, the <laughs> CRL boss, off the board and installed Politis. Where's the loyalty? <laughs> 
And so all of this is just baffling that when the game is falling apart, (laughs) these, like, New South Wales versus Queensland rivalries, like, (laughs) can't be, like, you know, gotten over. It's not even an attempt. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can't trust those bastards. You know, and when you're fighting claims of being Sydney-centric and not having a national focus, (laughs) the fact that John McDonald lived in Toowoomba was seen as, like, a, a problem from, <laughs> from the New South Wales, like, side of things. And, like, the fact that the tension between New South Wales and Queensland is one of the inciting incidents for the whole war, even after all this, like, they just <laughs> well, can't the, get past it. You wonder why Origin works? Yeah. Like, it's yeah, real. Yeah, exactly. It's real, man. So Arco's response to this was, it's very disappointing to see what's been happening, and I hope it's just a one-off thing. I'm away from all of this now, and I don't know the full story, but I can tell you one thing. I wouldn't have let it happen in my time. The game's at such a delicate stage at the moment, it's vital to present Super League with a united front. Well, that's all that did happen in his time. Well, yeah. All the time. He's right, though. Like- so, see, this is the thing. Like, He makes a good point that you know he was able to like manage the tension between the two boards. So he and Ron McAuliffe were rivals but friends. I love some of the stories between him and Ron McAuliffe. And actually, Wally, uh, Wally had been told, you know, basically shortly before McAuliffe died, he told Wally, Arco's the only bloke who will give us a bit of a hand. Just make sure you always stay on side with him. Which is like a really cool like, yeah. sentiment. But What's funnier than a bloke on his deathbed <laughs> calling him the king to go, listen, mate. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't read out the first part of that quote was he said, if anybody should tell you Queensland gets a fair go, don't believe them. Ourselves, we know what's going on. <laughs> uh, and Wally said that uh, Ken would chip away and Ron would give a little until they came up with something acceptable. Mind you, it was not always easy to detect how serious old Gunsind was. Ron would fly off the handle at New South Wales and walk out leaving the media shaking their heads. Then he'd wink at me and say, was I harsh enough? Or do you think I should go back in and give him a bit more? <laughs> a legend. You know, and again, we've talked about the cartel days and the old school way of doing things. Yeah. I like that. And I think Arco has a point there. But this point is severely undermined by the fact that it was under Arco's watch that the entire game blew up, <laughs> largely as a result of festering tension <laughs> yeah, between yeah, New yeah. South Wales and Queensland. But again, could anybody stop it? Queensland is um, in rugby league. They've got a chip on their shoulder, rightly or wrongly. So it's going to fester no matter who's running it. Well, see, this is the thing, and this is the original sin of the ARL in terms of Super League, was not going with the James West bid that (laughs) McAuliffe backed. That was like an insider's kind of bid with QRL approval. The Broncos, like, got the bid and did great with it, so they were probably right to give it to them. But once they did, once they gave it to this outsider group, the outsider group were not only offside with the New South Wales Rugby League, they were off with the QRL as well. So to say that I'm displeased that it comes down to Jeans West, <laughs> this whole thing, <laughs> is an understatement. <laughs> Couldn't even be a decent fitting pair of jeans. <laughs> so Arco over the years has long said that once we accepted the Broncos into the competition, our cards were marked. And that's kind of true. Like, but that's not to say that doing that wasn't the right thing. Like it Yeah, it worked. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, to be off with the uh New South Wales Rugby League and the QRL, yeah, yeah. That's something special. 
So I, I thought just to conclude this chapter and to say goodbye to, you know, the Arco and Quail years, we would just kind of discuss the legacy of the era. And I want to start with just the legacy of Arco the man and his contribution to rugby league. So, you know, like just one of the all-time great rugby league stories, like just to give dot points. So a Manly Junior was graded by them in 1948, just a year into their existence, played in their first grand final in 1951. He, you know, had a career-ending injury, almost life-ending injury that killed his playing career, but he could have had a great playing career. Like he went bush where he got that injury with the express purpose of making the Australian team through the countryside. That doesn't work out. Goes back to Manly, coaches their next two grand final appearances. 1957, 27 years old, you know, coaches them to a grand final. Yeah. Takes over as Manly secretary, age 33. That's amazing. Yeah. In that era. Yeah, yeah. And a few years into that, he outfaced Frank Facer in beating him to Bozo's signature, laying the foundations for the 70s, four premierships, the last of them done without Bozo. Uh, before then, you know, going on to be league boss and taking the ARL to the point of Super League. Like, it's just an amazing rugby league journey. Yeah, and a life dedicated to the yeah, game. absolutely. And the thing that always follows him is the manly bias. And I love the way he's never backed down from his love for manly. Even when he was league boss, he never pretended that he didn't love manly. It would have been worse if he pretended. Yeah, that. yeah, exactly. So I like this quote. There isn't a man in the world who doesn't come from somewhere. You don't just pop out of the ground and start living. I'll tell you this. If I ever turn my back on Manly, I wouldn't be worth two bob. I'd have no loyalty, no respect for a great club, and I'll never, ever do that. But I'll tell you this. Just because of my regard for Manly, it doesn't mean they get any preferential treatment, nor would they expect any. And so I think in terms of his administration, in the end, there was just too much of the Manly bias talk to ever, like, get past it. So even when all the talk was going on about how, you know, kangaroos were treated and, you know, the argument was, well, you know, we we sent them to England, you know, in business class and they stayed in a first-class hotel and then that was put to a Super League player who said, yeah, but that's just because Bozo was the coach. <laughs> <laughs> the way I look at it is they come into the game, it was only a few years past the 70s, which was just disgusting, mm. violent. Yeah, yeah. And by 94, it was professional and-ish. Yeah. And running high. Yeah. And Arco was the guy who bridged those two eras. Yeah. Like, it's a lot to do with... That can't be looked past. For me, the irony of the claims of manly bias is that most of that damage was done in the 70s. You know, the player poaching, the influence on the rules, the, yeah. you know... Getting, you know, a manly jersey is your way into a kangaroo's jersey. You know, the... Honestly, a lot of that's bozo. Well, yes, this is my point. You know, you had like 78, all the, the shenanigans in the semifinals there and the accusations. So that was all done when Arco was manly boss and exerting his influence on the league, mm. which, you know, he was a cartel member, but... So was Bullfrog, you know, and it wasn't man, it wasn't Canterbury that were like yeah. getting all these claims of bias. Like the fact is, Arco was doing the best for his club, exerting his in- influence because of his aptitude as an administrator. Yeah, 
by the time he got to you know be league boss and was at the ARL in the eighties, like it was Bozo more than Arco that the kind of manly bias was coming from. But what I love is his denial of the cartel. Like this, this is up there with my favorite quotes. I mean, you hear all these sorts of rumors, all sorts of deals. You put him in, and I'll put him in. Look. I've got no doubt that may have happened with blokes over the years, but geez, you know, there's no real hard evidence that that's ever happened. <laughs> How funny is an admission in the denial? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I like how he says, like, you hear all of these sorts of rumors. <laughs> yeah, you heard them because, like, you were in the room. <laughs> but, but, and also, like, the. Um, like a criminal, you got, you got nothing on me. There's no hard evidence. Yeah, <laughs> there's circumstantial evidence. No, nothing hard. Yeah. <laughs> Go back and listen to our early chapters when we, you know, discuss this era in in a lot more length. I think what the Super League War does, and you touched on earlier, is overshadows his rugby league story to an unfortunate degree. Not as bad as Rebo, but yeah. to a significant yeah. I say degree. Rebo, it's in the first sentence of his rugby league story. Yeah. Arco, it's his first paragraph. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, he is up there with, in terms of, like, the administrators, like, Arco is right up there, like, as one of the all-time figures in rugby league. This series is really, I've always respected him, but it's really grown yeah. And my admiration for him as a man. Mm. I just love those sort of guys that live like that, you know? Yeah. Charming and uh, loyal and, you know, is this a good fellow? Yeah. Well, someone who speaks very, very highly of him is Ian Heads. So I'll just read out an Ian Heads quote on Arco the Man. In all the time I knew him, he was never less than affable, polite, friendly. In this world of video violence and road rage, there's a great deal to be said for that. And I think for all his shrewdness, and all his, like, you know, Machiavellian tendencies. Yeah. That never kind of, you know, seeped into his personality. And how rare is affability in rugby league? Yeah, yeah. Abrasiveness yeah. rules. Mm. Affability is so underrated. Yeah. And for Ian, like the most dignified man we know mm. in the game. Yeah. Against uh, video violence, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> to, to say he's a nice man, like, that's something. Yeah. And so I think Arco the Man says a lot about the good that the ARL did. And, and I think. To try to say that Quail and Arco like didn't do a good job in getting the ARL to 1995, like I don't think you can make that argument. They did so much good in bringing the game up from its knees in the the early 80s. I'm so lucky to be. I was 14 in 94 at the peak of my rugby league fandom. My club was the best year for them. The best kangaroo tour ever for me. You yeah. Know? I just loved the game at that point. So mm. it's so special to me that 94. Yeah. And they got us to that point. Yeah. And if you look at the Warriors today, the Cowboys, like these, you know, success stories that are still here and it's been a rocky road, but like this was the vision of Archon Quail who got us here. So their footprints are still everywhere on the modern game. It should never have been brought into the comp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even if they would have a different sentiment. But. But I think we have to, you know, touch again on some of the negative. And, um, and I think a lot of that comes down to what we have talked about previously in, in that kind of complacency and that kind of air of arrogance that had seeped into their administration by the end. You know, like this, for example, this was Arthurson being asked about. The question is, one of the great cries in England was that the ARL considers itself the be-all and end-all of rugby league. Is that something which needs to be addressed? 
Uh, to which Arthurson replied, you have to be careful that that doesn't stem from some jealousy. <laughs> After all, we've dominated test matches for over 20 years. <laughs> and the thing is, like, I'm not saying jealousy so much, but he's kind of right in that, well, you know, we can't help it that, you know, our competition's strong and, you know, we've got the best players. We treat England like the ARL treats New Zealand Warriors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the thing. Like, that is a sentiment that, persists to this day and has only gotten worse, you know, to this day. Yeah. And, and that's not helped by the struggle that it's been in England for the last, you know, few years. Yeah. But this is a, an attitude that still persists and still permeates in the game. And to a, you know, considerable degree, it's these years, the Quail and Arco years, that kind of brought that sentiment in. We had one international arm um, we could have increased the exposure for the game mm. and the Australian game. Yeah. And they just had contempt for it. Yeah. So that's a big black eye. Yeah. For an affable guy, you'd think he'd have more nous than to show them that public contempt. Totally. And I think some of their successes as well made them blind to some of the outside forces that enabled that success. Mm. Like the England thing is the prime example. Like, you know, the conditions in the two countries in terms of rugby league is so different that australia has like a natural leg up and to just pin it all on you know they're just jealous <laughs> um, and, and i like this john quayle was asked what is your rugby league legacy what statement would you like to see written about you and he said here lies john quayle i don't know they didn't ask him to be dead here lies john quayle he helped give rugby league public acceptance he helped make it the envy of all other sports and along with Tina, made it simply the best. <laughs> like it's, it's just always got to come back <laughs> to Tina. <laughs> We've discussed in the past the dumb luck of the <laughs> Tina experience. Like I think the ARL just got so swept up in the success that they just believed their own hype. I do like the first line about the um, public acceptance because mm. it wasn't accepted. Yeah. It was a thugs game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is the kind of paradox. To get it to that point of acceptance and to clean up the game and make it appealing to the corporate world and all the stuff they had to do to, you know, get it in a really strong position, there was some, whether it's real or perceived, but like abandonment of the roots of the game. And I've called it the Yarni effect, the kowtowing to the high end of you know, society leaves the feeling of people at the grassroots being left behind. The Yarny thing was embarrassing because it was a transparent grab for you know, high-end acceptance. Yeah. That was a real clear example of that. Yeah, and I think Daily Messenger the Third has a great quote about, the, in his view, the hypocrisy of the league in claiming to be bringing this victory to the people. So this was after that February meeting in 1995. He said, I really got my Irish up this morning when I heard some bloke on the radio <laughs> say that rugby league had been returned to the people by the ARL's apparent victory. The fact is the game has never really been of the people. It's been a private club. Wow. Uh, and, you know, on top of that, there was the wanting this national vision without being able to get past Sydney. So on Sydney, Arthurson said, there will be an inevitably be change, but those who call for it should caution their haste with the performance of the Sydney clubs this year, that was in 1996, five of the last six clubs to survive the Qantas final series came from Sydney. Like, as if that has any bearing on the larger story. Like, 
just always the on-field success. Yeah. <laughs> and then ultimately, I think, you know, that Sydney thing tells the story. Like, Quail gave ground in 1996 talking about ANZ Stadium in Brisbane being considered to host the 97 or 98 grand final and giving ground at this point when the damage was done, mm. you know. Like, this was the, you know, not caring about finance fight. <laughs> the the origins, of, uh, origins of that was not considering taking grand final of Queensland. That's an olive branch under duress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then getting defensive about not doing enough about rationalisation with the rebuttal saying, we've also put out a call for a report which has just been finished on the privatisation of clubs. We've also called for a report on the amalgamation of clubs and the effect it would have, how people should go about it, the legal ramifications, all of those things. How about just read any of the 10 previously commissioned reports? How many frigging reports do we need? So sick of them. Yeah. So it it was just this perpetual can-kicking without, you know, taking the necessary steps. The same themes keep coming back and around and around. So the last question I had for you was the Arco and Quail influence on the Super League war. Like, we have them as these strong administrators that, like, you know, the public face the game and was so beloved by the ARL faithful for their role in the war. But, you know, a hypothetical, let's say Super League doesn't take place till 1996. There's a fair chance that Arco and Quail are both gone. They've ridden off into the sunset in glory. Well, I was going to say, man, if they had walked away for a victory lap at 94, been a great season, guys, great career, great decade. Thank you so much. We'll see you later. Off into some other field. Gravitas, new people, new blood, no uh, baggage. Uh, you can come in and rationalize this game. Perfect. But would it have been like? Oh, wouldn't have been. It would have been. Yeah. It would have been rugby league, just undermining <laughs> yeah. termites, white anning, backstabbing factions. Yeah. <laughs> but they would have had a better shot than those two. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably true. But ultimately, I wonder how much would have changed because it was just brought about by all these forces outside of rugby league. And Arkham and Quail were like, it's often said they're victims of their own success. I think this is true in a different way, that their own success made rugby league kind of too big for what they were able to influence. For example, if there was no Murdoch raid, right, if it was done in like Channel 9 decided with Packer to start pay TV and um, for that reason we're going to have a national comp and we're going to have to amalgamate, sorry guys, I reckon it would have been far more palatable. Watching that Zorba interview, the really telling thing for me was that when he was asked about what he thought, you know, about the Super League war, you know, this is 25, 27 years on, and was asked about News Limited, it wasn't News Limited that he really seemed to, you know, harp on. It was Packer. And it was specifically the fact that Packer had the rights and the pay TV rights and didn't want to do anything with them and didn't want to do a deal with News Limited. That seems to be Arco's enduring regret about the whole Super League thing. Uh, was that the rights that were thrown in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, again, like yeah. maybe missing the point that his administration had a significant role in that. Think about that if they could go back in time and assign those to a yeah operator. Mm. Um, but that is the end of this chapter, and, and I think it's one of those ones where I don't think we've, we've really got anywhere this is the whole series. Yeah. You don't get anywhere. Yeah. It's war. Mm. It's a quagmire. Yeah. But at the heart of it, you have rugby league men. Yep. And for all else, 
for all their failings and successes, Ken Arthurson, John Quayle, John Rebo, yeah, rugby league men to the core. Yeah, and so I think, given his place in the game, it's fair to surrender the last word to a man who I think will go and deserves to go down as one of the towering figures of rugby league history. So Ken Arthurson's parting words upon stepping down in February 1997. Rugby league has been my love, my sport, my job, my life. I don't know what the scoreboard will say. I hope it says he gave the game his best shot. He never sold the game out. Amen. And that's where we'll leave it for Chapter 32. So uh, when we return with Chapter 33, it will be right on the cusp of Super League, and we're going to see what the sizzle meant, what the new (laughs) rules were. And um, it, it's it's going to be a really fun chapter. So <laughs> the sizzle is so weak. <laughs> we run out of gas in the barbie. Yeah, look forward to that coming out. Uh, it's so great to be back in the room recording the Super League Wars. And thank you for uh, preparing such a great season. I've seen the stuff. You're in for a wild ride, believe me. Yep, and it all starts here. So uh, thanks again, and we will speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.